millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the History of Islam podcast, episode 15, Persecution. Hello and welcome back. Finally, we have returned and it has been quite a while. So before we begin our newest episode, I think it's only appropriate that we go on a recap on our previous episodes just to refresh our memories and to get back on track much more smoothly. We began our journey initially in episode 1 with a survey of the land of Arabia. We looked at the lay of the land, its geography, its society and its religion prior to the arrival of Islam. We saw that despite the fact that Arabia was a periphery land defined by its barren deserts, the great powers and empires that had bordered it such as the great Alexander and the Roman Empire under the rule of its Imperator Augustus, spellbound and dazzled by the Greeks' obsession with Arabia Felix, rich land of frankincense and myrrh, had attempted to venture deep into the Arabian Peninsula and subjugate the Arabs, only to fail miserably when faced with dry throats and the searing heat of the desert. We examined the techniques that the Arabs utilised which allowed them to survive and thrive on their dry peninsula. And then we moved on swiftly to the Hejaz region, landing at Mecca, a small city in the west of Arabia. At Mecca, we were introduced to one of Muhammad's ancestors, his great-great-great-grandfather, a man known as Qusay. In his lifetime, Qusay's ambition would lead him to assemble a force that he would wield, successfully prize away the city of Mecca from its rulers, and then place it firmly in his grasp, and his grasp alone, with himself as its sole ruler, king. Qusay and his allies, the force that he had assembled, would form the core of the Quraysh tribe, the tribe of the Prophet Muhammad. Qusay would live out an illustrious life, his legacy a shining beacon of light in the minds of his descendants. However, despite this and all of Qusay's plans, his legacy as sole ruler would not succeed beyond him very far at all. After his death, Qusay's descendants would bicker and feud amongst themselves until soon enough power in Mecca would no longer be concentrated in the hands of one man. 
In fact, power in Mecca would not even be held exclusively by even one clan. Following the division of powers in Mecca, we traced further down Muhammad's family tree and explored some of his forefathers' achievements, bringing us nicely to trade in Mecca. We saw that the most famed of the Quraysh's trading activities were the caravans of the summer and winter. This was when the Quraysh would send their caravans south in the winter to trade in Arabia Felix in the Yemen. And in the summer, Quraysh's caravans would journey to the north of Mecca and trade with the Byzantines. Next, we made a stop around the time of Muhammad's birth and we took a look at what the rest of the world was up to. The great Byzantine emperor Justinian would die in 565 AD, leaving behind him not only a great legacy, but also a much expanded empire, one that now stretched as it had before from the shores of the Atlantic in the west to the shores of the Black Sea in the east. Justinian looked like the man that would bring the Eastern Roman Empire back to its former glory, a man that may have been able to reunite the former western half. Alas, Justinian tried, but his efforts could only go so far. One of the factors that played a great part in Justinian failing to realise his dream of a restored Roman Empire were his rowdy neighbours, who, like a thorn in his backside, posed a great threat to the Byzantine Empire throughout the entirety of Justinian's rule. Bordering the Byzantines, the Persian Sasanis to the east were also going through a rejuvenation of their own, under the helm of another great emperor, Khosrow I. Under his rule, the Sasanid Empire had embarked on a great reformation, which resulted to the benefit of the empire's treasury and military capabilities in a much more centralised state. Sandwiched in between these two great powers, we find many different groups of Arabs, and they would all feel the influence of these superpowers in different ways. The Arab tribes in the north of Arabia, those closest to the two empires, most notably the Ghassanids in the northwest and the Lakhmids in the northeast, they would fall directly into the spheres of the empires and they would serve as vassals. The eastern coast of Arabia would be directly annexed by the Persians, as Khosrow vied to tighten his grip on the Persian Gulf and its lucrative trade. The most fertile region of Arabia, Arabia Felix, the Yemen, the southwest, would find itself at this point in time still within a drawn-out period of decline, its lowest point, an Abyssinian invasion in the 6th century. However, before Khosrow's death in 579 AD, the Yemen would change hands from the Abyssinians to the Sassanids. After our overview, we returned to Mecca to witness the birth of the baby Muhammad ibn Abdullah, the man responsible for the religion of Islam. Muhammad ibn Abdullah was from a clan known as the Beni Hashim. We went through some of the events of his early life and we also took the opportunity of his birth to look at the qualities that the Arabs admired, that the Arabs valued, and the qualities that the Arabs wished for their children to possess. We looked at the Bedouin Code, the unwritten set of laws that define the Arabs' values and the Arabs' morals, and we basically concluded that the men that the Arab admired were full of pride, 
arrogant, almost careless in their actions, ready to sacrifice anything, their wealth, their goods, their children, their very own lives, for nothing, absolutely nothing, for the sake of a fine gesture that would in their eyes exalt them in the eyes of other men. And this temperament, we saw how it had a positive and a negative side, because this attitude towards life rendered them in a way fearless. As we have discussed previously, in their eyes it was the pinnacle of nobility to act in the spurn of the moment, to charge unfazed in the face of death, not caring for any consequences, merely to avenge anything that might have offended you or your clan for that matter, anything from the murder of your father, something as grave as that, to something as petty as a minor insult. We saw this in our last episode with the conversion of Muhammad's uncle Hamza, who it seems only converted after a spurn of the moment act of passion where he sought to defend his nephew from the abuse of a clan rival. With the birth of Muhammad ibn Abdullah, we began to leave behind the introductory thread of our narrative and instead turned our lens towards Muhammad himself with a much greater focus on his life and his actions. As Muhammad grew older and began his transformation from a boy to a man, we recounted some of the events of his early life, such as his participation in Quraysh's wars as a youth, his marriage to the widow Khadija, and the birth of his children. By episode 10, Muhammad had reached his 40th year, and so also began another transformation, his transformation from Muhammad ibn Abdullah to Muhammad, messenger of God. After the incident at the cave of Hira, we saw how Muhammad kept his newfound revelation private for around three years, with only a select few people, such as his household and his close friend Abu Bakr, being informed of the religion. In this initial three-year period, the movement grew slowly but steadily. Muhammad's followers enthusiastically but carefully spread the word of their new discoveries. We highlighted this in episode 11 with a look at the efforts of Abu Bakr specifically and the great impact he would make. The three-year period would come to an end in 613 AD with a revelation ordering Muhammad to rise and warn his people, to rise and warn mankind, resulting in Muhammad going public with his religion. In the last few episodes before our break, uh, before our break began, we took some time to analyze who exactly Muhammad's earliest followers were. Who were these people that were accepting his words as the truth and accepting him as the messenger of God? We looked at their social backgrounds with a few specific examples from each layer of Meccan society. We even managed to look at two examples of people from outside the city of Mecca who converted and chose to embrace the religion of Islam. With the number of Muhammad's followers ticking upwards, the risk of more people from outside the city of Mecca finding a liking towards the words of Muhammad, Quraysh saw in Muhammad nothing but a man who was threatening their livelihoods, threatening their very way of life. In an attempt to stop Muhammad and quell his fledgling movement before it managed to grow into anything more than the despised minority that it was, Quraysh organized 
what can only be described as a propaganda campaign, with the primary objective of preventing Muhammad from disrupting their pilgrimage season. While their scheme succeeded in a way, Muhammad was unable to attract a significant number of converts from amongst the pilgrims visiting Mecca, Quraysh's scheme failed to stop Muhammad from his preaching completely, and this was thanks to the protection of his uncle, Abu Talib. Muhammad was free to roam and speak as he pleased, knowing that he had the full weight of the Hashim clan behind him. Through their propaganda campaign, the Quraysh had hoped to crush Muhammad completely. They had hoped to turn him into a public laughingstock, nothing more than the village fool, the village idiot, the crazed madman whose mind was plagued with hallucinations, a lunatic who heard voices in his head and claimed they were divine. This way, nobody in their right minds would go anywhere near Muhammad, never mind listening to him or, or pay any attention to his words. Well, this side of the plan didn't quite work out as the Quraysh would have liked, and we have seen that in fact, there were many people who paid a great deal of attention to Muhammad's words. The latest amongst them, Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib, arguably Muhammad's first Marqui convert. Finally, a man who may be considered amongst the elite in Mecca. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As we saw, Hamza had an instantaneous effect upon the Quraysh. The Quraysh were now much, much more hesitant to harass Muhammad directly, knowing that Hamza was now on his side. While his addition to the ranks of the Muslim faithful was a great boon to their cause and did much to lift the morale of Muhammad's followers and strengthen Muhammad's position in Mecca, the conversion of such a reputable and able man, a man in his prime nonetheless, certainly not an impressionable youth like a lot of Muhammad's other followers, the conversion of such a man was, to say the least, a totally unexpected event for the top brass of the Quraysh and, as I imagine, for Muhammad and his followers also. This unexpected event totally shocked the Quraysh. It shocked them so much that it brought them out of their lull, making them realize the gravity of the situation, making them all the more conscious of the need for urgent action. A change in tactics was now sorely needed if they hoped to ever stop the ever-growing menace, the threat of public enemy number one, Muhammad. As ideas were kicked around in the Melet, which we said is Quraysh's equivalent of a Senate, one of the leading men of the Quraysh, the chieftain of the Bani Abd Shams clan, a man known as Utbah ibn Rabi'ah, stepped forward. Utbah's clan, the Bani Abd Shams, was actually a brother clan to the Hashim clan, the clan that Muhammad belonged to. But their proximity in blood did not do much to dampen the extents of their rivalries. If you recall, the Hashim and Abd Shams are the two clans that branched from the two twins, who were conjoined at birth until their father separated them by cutting them apart with a swing of his sword. 
Amongst the members of the Abd al-Shams clan that we have mentioned previously are Uthman ibn Affan, one of Muhammad's earliest followers, brought into the fold through the efforts of Abu Bakr, and another is Abu Sufyan ibn Harb, an influential man who, put it this way, did not feel the same way as his clansman Uthman when it came to Muhammad's new religion. Well, Utbah came forward and suggested to the rest of the Melat that he go and personally speak to Muhammad on behalf of them all. Negotiate some kind of deal with Muhammad where he would refrain from what they disliked and in return they would offer him what he desired. Utbah was a famed diplomat and so the Quraysh agreed to his proposal and off he went. Utbah found Muhammad sitting by the Kaaba. He approached him and sat himself by his side and he began with words of praise and flattery like diplomats do. He addressed him as my nephew, reminding him of their proximity in relation. Honouring familial ties, ties of blood, was a great deal for the Arabs, something that simply cannot be ignored. And it's not even ignored in Islam. The religion of Islam really emphasises one's duty to one's family and the expectation for a Muslim to never cut off a family member. Utbah fully wielded in his skills as a diplomat attempted to soften Muhammad up with his flattering words. My nephew, you are one of us, the noblest of the tribe, and you have come to your people with a very important matter, but it has divided their community. You have ridiculed their customs, their religion, you have declared their venerated forefathers unbelievers, doomed to a hellfire for eternity. So, listen to me, and I will make you some suggestions. Perhaps you will find amongst them one which you can accept. Muhammad politely agreed to hear him out, and so Utbah went on. Muhammad, if it is wealth you desire, we will gather our money and make you the wealthiest amongst us. If it is honour you desire, we will make you the first amongst us. Nothing is done without your approval. If it is sovereignty you desire, we shall make you our king. And if this thing that comes to you, which you see and are unable to rid yourself from it, we will seek for you the finest physicians. We will exhaust ourselves and our wealth in an effort to free you from it. The Prophet had listened to Utbah's pitch patiently. He had been silent throughout its entirety. Ya Abel Walid, he replied, father of Walid. Utbah was known as the father of Walid. He had a son named Walid. And... It is deemed respectful in Arab culture to this day to address someone by their kunya, their nickname, father of or mother of, rather than to address them crudely and directly by their name. A gesture of respect. Aqad faraghta ya abal walid, which means, are you done? Have you said all that you came to say? And Utbah answered, yes, I have. Muhammad replied, well, it's time for you to listen from me now. He then began to recite to Utbah verses from the Qur'an. In the episode guide, I will include the full extent of the verses that Muhammad recited to Utbah. I will also include a link to audio of the recitation in Arabic and a link to an English translation. As Muhammad sat there reciting, Utbah made himself comfortable. He sat back into a position where his arms supported him and listened attentively in silence, doing as Muhammad had done with him, 
not interrupting the Prophet once. The Prophet ended his recitation and prostrated himself. He then turned towards Utbah and said to him quite simply, Father of Walid, you have heard what you have heard. Now it is you and your conscience alone. Utbah returned to his companions and advised them to leave Muhammad alone, but he was met with words of ridicule. The need for action was rising. Their diplomatic endeavours were not working out and their hands were tied as long as Abu Talib and the Bani Hashim continued to protect Muhammad. Their frustration at not being able to physically harm Muhammad himself were then turned towards his followers. It was agreed that each clan would deal with the Muslims within its ranks. Persecution was now in full swing and as usual, it was the poorest and most deprived followers of Muhammad who suffered the most, the bottom class, the lowest of the low. And as we described in episode 11, these were the slaves, more specifically the non-Arab slaves. Bilal ibn Rabah, a man who we have mentioned previously, was born into slavery to an Arab father and an Abyssinian mother, both of whom were also slaves. Bilal belonged to a man known as Umayyah ibn Khalaf. Umayyah was from the Jumah clan, which was an influential and powerful Qurashi clan, but it was not exactly a leading clan, unlike the Makhzum or the Hashim clan, for instance. Nevertheless, Umayyah was an enthusiastic subscriber to the policy of persecution, and he was creative with it as well. Bilal was tortured severely and in countless manners. Umayyah's favourite method of torture would be to bring him out at the hottest point of the day, when the sun was nearing its highest point in the sky, and he would lay Bilal out in an open valley in order for a great rock to be placed on his chest, a rock so heavy that it would take three of Umayyah's men to lift and place the rock on Bilal's bare chest. Umayyah would then say to him and taunt him that he would remain as he was until he died or denied Muhammad and worshipped Allat and Al-Uzza, two of the Quraysh's venerated idols. Throughout this ordeal, Bilal would do nothing but constantly repeat the words Ahad, Ahad, which meant one, one. A reference to the one God, a reference to the monotheism that Muhammad preached. The monotheism that Umayyah and his cronies hated so much, and Bilal was later asked why he kept repeating this one word and this one word only, and he answered that he did so because he knew that it was the one word that annoyed Umayyah the greatest. Despite his misfortune, Bilal would find a saviour, one none other than the Abu Bakr himself. Abu Bakr had made it a personal endeavour of his to try and utilise his wealth and free as many of his brothers in faith as he could. And it was on a scorching hot day with Bilal out in the sun, his chest almost caving in from the weight that it had been forced to bear, that Abu Bakr came to Umayyah and bought the slave Bilal from his master, freeing him from his state of servitude. While Bilal was ultimately fortunate in this sense, others were not quite so fortunate and they would meet fates much, much different than that of Bilal. And that is what our next episode will be on. I would just like to let you all know that today is in fact Eid al-Adha, the greater Eid. And I'm pretty sure that there is going to be no day more appropriate for our return than for this day, Eid al-Adha. 
And it also happens to be a Monday, which was actually the day that won in our poll. So from now on, episodes will be uploaded on Monday. For this initial return period, I'd say about a month or two, I'll aim to upload on a fortnightly basis. So this means I'll upload every two weeks. And as soon as I settle in and I get back into my routine and my way of doing things, as soon as I'm comfortable again with publishing on a regular basis, episodes will go back to being published on a weekly basis. I hope this doesn't bother that many of you, but I'm just glad that we are finally back. I'll see you next episode, which will hopefully be longer than this one. Not this Monday, but the Monday after that, on the 26th of September. See you then. Stay tuned with the Facebook page and the blog History of Islam podcast.blogspot.com and do not be shy to send me a message on the contact page. Finally, before I leave you, I would just like to remind you that the History of Islam podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, which is a host to many brilliant podcasts. Definitely check them out on agorapodcastnetwork.com where you can easily view our members list. Our podcast of the month is Lands of Leviathan, a very, very well-produced podcast that looks at politics and international relations. So not quite in the same vein of what we are doing here at the History of Islam, but still a very good listen for those of you that are interested in political science, but with a twist. That will be all for now. Goodbye. (laughs) 